to get out there and vote. None of this will have mattered if you don't vote. And we can't tell you who to vote for, but on Tuesday, we all get a chance to choose what kind of country we want to live in. And, and live, live from, from New York, York it's Saturday night! night. Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. Tonight we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 5 of Saturday Night Live with host Benedict Cumberbatch and musical guest Solange. I'm John Murray and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at TransparencyCHMR. And you can connect with us at SNLAfterParty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out and are greatly appreciated. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Benedict Cumberbatch. All right, so next week we have um, a guy named Dave Chappelle hosting. Have uh, you ever heard of him, Steve? Yeah, it sounds familiar. I think he might have, you know shaped my teenage years like completely <laughs> so yeah i think i think i remember the guy yeah so when i heard that th- my first thought was okay super grin this is awesome but then i, I was thinking about it a little more and what i couldn't quite figure out is why now you know he, he had his comedy central thing and he's been considered a renowned stand-up forever what is it that's putting him on the radar now have you got any thoughts on kind of what's going on in Chappelle's world i'm pretty sure the reason he's hosting SNL is basically just to help promote Tribe Called Quest's new album. They're very good friends. Oh, okay. So he's kind of lending his celebrity to to help sell that, I think. Uh, you're absolutely right. Other than his stand-up tours, he doesn't really have anything going on in the public eye. So, you know, I'm sure it will help with his uh, visibility. But uh, he's doing this to help his friends out okay. more so. See, that was the missing piece there. I didn't know there was a connection with A Tribe Called Quest. Okay, so before we jump into the review, though, last week when we were when we were doing our recap of the show, we got to the CBS broken pre-tape. And when we were trying to bat it around, neither of us could really kind of put our finger on conclusively what they were trying to say with it. So the, the takeaway, as far as I can tell with that sketch, well, <laughs> actually, just to preface this. I could not find two people online, professional or other, who had the same take on the sketch. It seems like it's one of those sketches where everyone's going to read into it a little bit differently based on their their viewpoint and their, you know, what their knowledge of the subject matter is. The best take I can really put on it is that it's just simply speculating on the sort of show that CBS might have come up with if they ever got frustrated with the how the traditional style sitcoms are constantly now losing to these prestige cable web dramedies that barely qualify as comedies. So I don't think it was goofing on any in, in particular show or even a particular type of, of network show, but it was just simply showing how on a network it would be impossible to uh, really produce a show like Orange is the New Black. And, you know, when you have to cater to mainstream audiences that expect a comedy to to sort of be in this traditional sitcom format, that there's just really no way for a broadcast network to win in this kind of uh, environment. So I think that was probably as close to what they were shooting for as I can tack down. Did you have a chance to uh, give it a second watch or or try and wrap your mind around it anymore? Yeah, I had another look at it and... 
I took to the message boards, which I avoid mm-hmm. before we record these casts because I don't want to get influenced in my opinion or parrot opinions of other people. I want right. to be more genuine. So uh, I've never seen Transparent, but those who have seemed to be saying that tonally they were kind of trying to copy that show. Right. So I think that's where the the style comes from and the fact that CBS is a little out of touch and kind of pandering to an older demographic, you know, that they would kind of butcher that style and and make a, such a dry mess of a show <laughs> right. in result. Yeah, and even how they market it, like the commercial for it had a very upbeat voiceover and, and a, a, a snappy presentation. So it's almost like CBS doesn't even know or or doesn't trust that their audience could even understand what the show's about unless they frame it in terms of this is what you expect to see from a sitcom. Right. But yeah, that's uh, probably enough on that. Let's get into the show. So for the cold open, they they frame another Hillary and uh Trump standoff, but the uh, difference with this one is they go back to this idea of breaking character, breaking the fourth wall, stepping off stage and uh, just trying to present something with a little bit of whimsy to lighten, <laughs> lighten the, the, the dramatically negative tone of, uh, the presidential campaigns. Right. So was this the right time for this? Did this work? Is this what the country needed right now? Like, why do you think they decided to do a, an about face and kind of jump out of the fray on all of their political satire? Now, this was really big of them to do, and I'm really glad they did it because while they were covering this election so heavily and being pretty much the main reactionary voice for the country, this was attributing to the, the uh, conflict between the two sides. So the fact that they come out and say, you know what, with all this uh, disagreement we have, we can still hold hands and <laughs> come together as people mm-hmm. and, and appreciate each other for who we are. And I think this is really responsible of them to do that because they're kind of working on the damage control that they might have contributed to. Sure. Yeah. So I think, I think this was a lovely sketch and you know, that, uh, that pre-taped bit that they got into really made me feel warm and fuzzy. (laughs) Okay. So from a, an inspirational or uplifting standpoint, or even just from a let's pull back and remember what's really important kind of standpoint, you felt that it was powerful and worthwhile. Is that the takeaway here? That's right, yeah. And it, it, it really solidifies what I was saying in previous uh, podcasts is that, you know, we got a sense from the staff at SNL that they were a little bit over this. Mm-hmm. They were done. Right. And this is really them putting the last nail in the coffin with that and pretty much confirming what I had suspected how they were feeling. Yeah, and I think they obviously recognized that the audience was done with it too, right? You can only be beaten over the head with an unending barrage of Trump mania and Clinton scandal and all of it. It it, it just it gets to a point where uh, it's so abrasive that the comedy doesn't cut through anymore. And I think they realized we I think we're past that or we've been past it probably for a couple of weeks now. All right, so I think I get what you're saying. My question is purely from a comedic standpoint. Right. Like if we take the the message and the uh, social consciousness out of the equation, was it just an enjoyable comedic romp? Like, did it just work as a cold open or was it because it was shooting so high? Did it maybe not get the show off to the best foot? I think it did. And any monumental episode or monumental moment in this in this show 
they they like to go with a, a change in style and make things a little more cinematic. Sure. Um, like they did with Seth Meyers and uh, Bill Hader. Yeah, the wedding. <laughs> uh, for the Stefan wedding. Yep. Yeah. They they tend to turn up the production value a bit and, and give a more serious tone to catch your attention. Sure. And and, and viewers pick up on that. This, they, they see that it's a shift from the usual style and they follow the cue that maybe SNL is telling me something that they normally don't take the time to. Okay. Fair enough. So I think, I think it was, it, it was successful in putting out a serious message around all the comedy mm-hmm. and it was handled, handled well, I think. Fair enough. I don't know if I was quite as warm on it as you were just because the level of election hysteria that SNL has embraced and tried to exploit for all it's worth for so long now because they've been so in the fray on that i almost felt like well sorry guys kind of like too little too late kind of a situation here like i almost kind of would have liked them to find a a fresh voice and a fresh way of presenting a, a more inspired message about the election weeks ago not that you know the debates and stuff didn't have their fun moments and we enjoyed them i just i feel like why is it now your last show before the election that you've decided okay well now we're going to talk about being responsible voters and now we're going to talk about bringing sanity back and you know holding hands in kumbaya why why is it that we're only getting this now when it's almost like too late to really make a difference we've been so like mired in this craziness (laughs) why didn't we have this conversation before that so i couldn't quite separate myself from a little bit of annoyance with SNL, maybe seeming a little high and mighty (laughs) or or like a little, uh, I I don't know, just they had Trump on, they almost like kind of kicked off this whole stupidity. And when it seemed like it was a sure thing that Trump was eventually going to crash and burn, everyone was happy just to kind of like pile on. And it was just, they, everyone assumed that cooler heads would prevail, but now at the end of it, um, Hillary's scandal drops at the exact wrong time. And now they're neck and neck again. And the whole country is stepping back and going, Oh my God, like this may actually go totally South one way or another. We may be screwed either way. And now SNL wants to get high minded on it. And I just, I don't know if, if I felt like they're the, they, they have any credibility to be, be doing that at this point. I think maybe you're just a jaded old man who can't be pleased at this point in his life. But you know what? And and maybe I'm taking election fatigue out on SNL. I wouldn't put that past me either because it is so ever present and it is, it has been such a dark cloud over kind of like all of entertainment for, for so long that I I feel like someone should have stood up and tried to reframe this a long time ago. And uh, I don't know, too little, too late for me. That said, Still a couple solid jokes in there. I really love during the pre-tape half of it when Kate's out trying to embrace Trump supporters and one guy turns around, he's got a t-shirt on it that that is very offensive to her. She she still tries to like just swallow her pride and give him as much of a hug as she can muster, but you can tell that it's like painful on her face. That was a, a very like sharp and smart reaction that Kate gave. And that, that made me grin. And, and when she's trying to deflect the pundits conversation off of her emails and she's talking about Mark Burnett, you got to like drop something here. I know you've got a racist conversation. Uh, and she does the whole, uh, what's the line? Oh, it's, uh, like they say on wheel of fortune, give me an end. Like that's, oh boy, <laughs> that's a smart joke. And, uh, I thought that landed really well. So I thought it had its moments. I just wasn't a hundred percent behind the message. Fair enough. All right. Monologue. Benedict Cumberbatch comes out uh, looking suave 
takes command of the stage and decides that it is his time to embrace the American tradition of bragging uh, via apparently Barry White style <laughs> 70s funk. Shaft. Yeah. Yeah. Where did this, um, where do you think this came from? And more importantly, was this a good way to, to kick off the show? Uh, you know, I kind of get it. Like, there's nothing less Isaac Hayes out there than um, right. Benedict Cumberbatch, a skinny white <laughs> uh, British fellow. Right. So that that contrast there lends some comedy in itself. Mm-hmm. As far as execution goes, I think they were trying to make Benedict sing a little, a little bit better than he actually can. <laughs> yeah, he, he was straining a little bit. That was obvious. and Which is fine, but he was actually <laughs> trying to like ad lib and, and sing- just beyond his skill set. And sure. it kind of was a bit awkward. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a few cringy moments because you could tell that he was out of his depth to his credit. He worked very hard to try and keep his composure and keep, you know, keep grinning and keep in the moment and, and try and keep the enthusiasm and energy up. And if it wasn't just for his inability to really keep up musically, then it probably would have played a little bit better than it did. I think I had a similar reaction to you that this, there was a kernel of a funny idea behind it, but they certainly weren't playing to his performance strengths and that, that kind of killed it a bit. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. My only other thought on the monologue was it seems to me Every time Melissa Villasenor is on screen, it looks like she is just lapping up every moment of her time on SNL. She seems to be just having a ball. Have you picked up on how kind of like infectiously enthusiastic she always looks when she's on screen? Yeah, she reminds me of a uh, like a female Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> sure, okay. <laughs> Moving on, let's talk a little bit about our first pre-tape, which is the Cool Toilet by Kohler. I'm not going to set it up. You just You just tell me how this landed for you. I thought it was pretty good. You know, that dystopian setting Mm -hmm. was a good way to sell uh, the monotony of sitting on one's toilet and not looking (laughs) cool. I think Benedict, you know, the the character they came up, they came up with to represent the the rebellion of of a toilet that could make you look stylish. (laughs) They encompassed all that really well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was short. It was it was a perfect length for such a simple setup and joke. And the production value was pretty good. It had that big brother kind of thing going. Mm-hmm. Whatever. It, was, it wasn't amazing, but it was, it was short enough that I could appreciate the joke and then say, what do you got next? Sure. Yeah. I enjoyed it while I was watching it, but forgettable. That's my uh, Cliff Notes version. Overall forgettable. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only other thing that's probably worth saying about it is it seems like they were framing it and intentionally setting it up to be an homage to, or a, a goof on the, the Apple 1984 commercial, right? He comes in with the sledgehammer, the big screen, all the people in their, their little spots. So there's a commercial that features all those, those, uh, details. Yeah. Have you never seen the Apple 1984 commercial? How, how long ago was it? <laughs> it came out in 1984. <laughs> Yeah, I was negative one year old. Right. Well, no, 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 don't, don't. That, see, under normal circumstances, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. You weren't alive. Of course you didn't see it. But this is considered possibly the best commercial of all time. What? Right. Like it's, oh. it, it, it is a, a cultural touchstone. So most people know about it, even if they're not Apple fanboys or weren't alive or whatever. Is that why Mikey Day looked so much like Steve Jobs? Uh, no, but he looked like the big brother character in the 1984 commercial with the little round glasses and the black and white screen, like the very imposing, it will, 
after the cast, just go online. It's on YouTube. You'll watch it and you'll be like, oh yeah, obviously a hundred percent. This is exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And you should link it in the notes as you do. Oh, I will. Yeah, I definitely will. It was actually directed by Ridley Scott. Like that's how big a deal it was at the time. They, they actually tacked down a big name director and spared no expense to make it as epic as they possibly could. So I, I, for, I think most people probably know what I'm talking about, but for anyone else, check the show notes. We'll, uh, we'll make sure it's there. Moving on. Why is Benedict Cumberbatch hot? This is Beck Bennett's usurping of the show to try and get to the bottom of this burning issue. Did you think this uh, was a clever sketch? Pretty clever. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to kind of extend a level of disbelief for this to work (laughs) because, you know, this showed up in dress rehearsal. You know, it's a sketch. Sure. Just like anyone else. So you kind of got to play along with their confusion as to why they're there. Yeah. The hints are there to set it up well. They're using their real names. Right. And Beck Beck did a good job of carrying the sketch. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it it was clever the way that it was presented. Mm -hmm. And it is a question that many men do ask because when it comes to (laughs) what a man is attracted to, it's much more superficial than what women find attractive in men. Right. What Vanessa was doing with the rambling, what AD was doing with just cartoonish sound effects. That's almost as close as a lot of women can get when they try to <laughs> articulate what they find attractive in a man. Sure, sure. It, it, it spoke very, very well to me. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I thought this was great. I thought Beck Bennett did a phenomenal job of finding the exact right way to ground his character. He wasn't like smug and almost like obnoxiously pursuing it. He was more like just genuinely confused and bewildered. And he was, it it was almost like a little bit of his insecurity was coming out. Like, why doesn't anyone like me? Like, look at, you know, like I'm a conventionally attractive man. And you know, you guys are swooning over this guy who looks like a hammerhead shark. Uh, His approach to the sketch, I thought worked really well. And you already touched on the girls performances. I, I think Vanessa really shone in her ability to, almost when Harry met Sally style, get completely caught up in the moment of fantasizing about Benedict Cumberbatch (laughs) in the midst of her answer. (laughs) So there, yeah, the, both of those little moments I thought hit really, really well. And overall, I thought the sketch, um, I think it just escalated to where it needed to get and then figured out how to get out and it got out very organically. Yeah. Everything about it. Just, I thought end to end it was tight and it worked and it had a very clear intention and presented it well. Okay, uh, let's take a look at Office Hours. Now, we've seen Pete Davidson as Chad before. We saw him on the Julia Louis-Dreyfus episode. And I I can't remember exactly what your take was, but I remember thinking that that was probably one of the strongest moments of the night for that show. Right. Did you feel like bringing him back and putting him in a, a new scenario where someone is lovelorn over him, do you feel like they were able to find anything fresh or inventive with the character? Yeah, well, that's a hard, hard thing to say because it, if it, it follows the same uh, formula, it's Chad with pretty much nothing in his brain, mm-hmm. completely blank slate of a character. <laughs> uh, in contrast, with someone who really overthinks things, uh, has like a complicated set of of feelings and emotions tied in with Chad directly, but the fact that Chad is so just clueless and, you know, simple-minded that they're projecting a lot of their feelings onto him. Exactly. 
Yep. So you see, you know, when he, when he farts and says safety, <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch replies, you're right. I should laugh more. Yes. I mean, he wasn't saying that at all, but the fact that they're trying to get meaning, meaning out of the emotions they have, they, that they place those meanings yes. there. And it's, it's a really good magnifying glass to hold up to society. And, you know, sometimes... Sometimes what you're feeling is just your biology <laughs> and there's no grayer meaning. And I think the fact that they were discussing Rene Descartes uh, at the beginning of this sketch uh, really uh, helps to make that point. And I just like seeing Pete Davidson having real character work as simple as it is. Mm-hmm. It's a great growth of his uh, contributions to the show as well. Yeah. We both recognize that for as simple as that character seemingly would be to play, there is something that Pete Davidson is bringing to it that makes it work really well. And that was on display here too. Okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You can't help but giggle a little bit at just how casual and disconnected he is from everything that's going on around him. And kind of like what you touched on the, the deeper joke in the sketch is that the people that he encounter take that willingness for him to just simply be a sounding board for their emotions and their needs that, they hear something profound in every little inane thing that comes out of his mouth. That is where the real smartness of the sketch lies. Yeah, totally. Okay. So that's a lot on office hours. Let's talk a little bit about surprise bachelor party. AD Bryant is a grandma and (laughs) her, her poor heart just can't take the excitement (laughs) that her family wants her to experience. For, for my money, this is easily the hardest I've laughed at watching a corpse get abused in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have similar warm feelings to what they were putting up on screen? Oh yeah. It's, it was, it was, it was really funny to see that play out because it just reminds me of how families for both extremely young and extremely old people, they'll put them in situations that aren't so much for them, sure. <laughs> but for us to observe and say, oh, and you know, this is a, <laughs> maybe this could serve as a PSA is like, you know, do things that your grandma would want, <laughs> right? not what you want to see your grandma being put through for your own enjoyment <laughs> because you might kill them in the process. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it, it was for such a stupendously dumb sketch, it had a lot of smart little ideas in there. And I think that, I think you're right to pick up on that, that this was very much about the titillation of everyone else who planned it. And the grandma was really inconsequential. Yeah. To the point where they don't even notice she's dead. Exactly. Yeah. They're just lapping it up and she's just not even part of, (laughs) part of, part of, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) you're, you're right. That was a lot of fun. Now, at a bit more of a technical level, the the thing that really kind of stunned me with it was how good 80 was in the part. Playing dead, we, you'd think it's easy. It isn't always that easy. But for her, she didn't just have to just lie there. She had to like get batted around by these guys, like <laughs> you know, thrusting their crotches and batting her head back and forth and putting whipped cream on her and all those things. For her not to break in the midst of some of the things that they were doing to her, really, really good for her that she could hold that together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like even her airways were kind of obstructed when they were covering it with whipped cream. I I expected her to kind of like cough it up and stuff. 
she did not break. Yeah, she was trying very hard to keep it together. And it's a good thing because the sketch is already so ridiculous that breaking wouldn't have helped it. The thing that makes it funny is you buying into the idea that this is a weekend at Bernie's kind of thing. Right. So if it's obvious that she's like giggling and, and you know, there, once that illusion's broken, the jokes aren't going to play as well. So she, it was really all on her to hold that together. And she did marvelously. There was a, a part where she slides out of the chair and flops down face first. And she committed to that, right? Like you would have expected maybe one of her hands to go out to break the fall a little bit or for it to seem a little bit more controlled, but she, she nailed it. Like that's just some great sketch work there and uh, great for 80 to be game for that. Cause that's, you have to be a little bit fearless to be willing to take that role because it is kind of, you, you are a little bit exposed in that situation, right? Like she's flopping around on the ground, guys are on top of her. It's just, there's, even though it's a sketch and everybody who's in the, the cast at SNL knows that they got to always bring their a game. There's still some sketches where you can tell they really have to like nut up and just be game for anything. And Good on 80. Really good on 80. Yep. Totally. Yeah. I, uh, I really thought this was fun. Not smart. Like <laughs> you're, you're laughing at just the vulgarity of <laughs> crotches and whipped cream. And then of course, obviously the Cubs come out and they each have their, uh, you know, double entendres and then everyone gets in the fray, uh, triple header and whatnot. Oh, one other thing before we move on, there's a little beat right in the middle where, Mikey day gets down on his knees and he looks at 80 right in the face and he goes, you know, lady, lady, like he, he, he starts to look a little concerned yeah. for uh, a couple seconds and you're like, okay, they're about to flip the sketch. Now everyone's going to find out and there's going to be horror or something like they're, they're going to go in another angle. And what they did with it was they fake you out. They, they make you think, okay, he's clued in that grandma's dead, but no, he's just setting her up for the you know, the stinger that, yeah, we're going to take this party to the next level. You're the thousandth, thousandth customer. And all yeah, that. exactly. So that was, that was smart to put that in the middle because it does put you at the edge of your seat going like, okay, where are they going now? Now that the joke is the jig is up, right? Granny's dead. Now what's the sketch going to do with that concept? And no, they just escalate and take it even further with the cub. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of fun moments, totally stupid, totally vulgar, and just a blast end to end as far as I was concerned. Agreed. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about both of Solange's musical performances tonight. Her first song, Cranes in the Sky, and then her second performance, Don't Touch My Hair, and she had uh, Sampha as her uh, supporting vocalist on that. My impressions, she was a less curvy Beyonce (laughs) in looks. I'm sure she loves hearing that. (laughs) You know, she's talented. Her voice was a little wavering at, at times, but she she can hit some serious high notes. Uh, the mise-en-scene of the whole uh, performance and, and the choreography choices. Uh, maybe I'm just getting too old to understand the artistry of, of young people's music. <laughs> but, you know, she had her bass player and guitar player kind of doing like choreographed dance like they were Jackson 5. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, that's cool, but the dance moves they were doing were weird. Sure. She was, even her especially, you know, she wasn't dancing much up until later on, but she'd do these random poses coupled <laughs> with jazz hands yep. and just hold that for, a, you know, a few seconds and go back to singing. I just felt like I was dreaming, you know, after, and then after the jazz hands, she starts doing the, the grocery shopping dance where she's 
reaching for the uh, imaginary <laughs> item on the shelf and putting it in her imaginary shopping cart. Go back and watch it and, and, yep. and ha- have that thought in your head. It's hilarious. I have a very clear picture of exactly what you're, you're referencing. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Okay. So let's, let's bottom line this. What was your takeaway? Like you, you, there was a lot of little moments that struck you as funny, but did it work? Are we a Solange fan? I will say I recognize the talent, the work put into having a consistent voice in your music and your visual presentation and all that. Mm-hmm. And that's all, all obviously a collaborative effort with her and her managers and producers. And while I don't really, it's not really for me, it's not my cup of tea. I appreciate the, the level of a vision they have for her as an artist. So. Yeah. I think in Solange's case, it probably just comes down to the fact that her older sister's Beyonce. So kind of hard to uh, make your mark <laughs> when you're so she's actually related to beyonce yeah she's her sister oh is she the one that that hit jay-z or yeah. punched him in the face yeah. okay 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 <laughs> now, I, now i remember yeah so she looks like beyonce for a reason now now it makes sense to me yeah it, it's astute that you would make a beyonce comparison out of the gate without actually knowing what the connection was there so i don't good on you for being attuned to the female form as as much as you are okay so I don't have a whole lot to say about it. I was trying to just find like one word or one sentence that would kind of encapsulate how I felt about both performances. And to me, I think it just felt a little disjointed or stilted. That's kind of what I came away feeling. It there, it just didn't feel really cohesive. It just felt all over the map for me. And I just was a little, uh, it was a little hard for me to really wrap my head around what I was supposed to be taking away from it. Yeah. Let's talk weekend update. Now, my big sticking point the last few weeks is that I've gotten very burnt out on the wall-to-wall Trump weekend updates. But for the first time, we didn't really have that. You know, we had a little bit of back and forth about Hillary's emails and some Trump stuff, but more or less, it felt like they were lightening up and trying to steer clear or just uh, just keep that a little more in the background. Yeah. Was Weekend Update better for them just trying to maybe balance it in a different way this week? Or, you know, how did, how did you feel this stacked up to what we've gotten so far this season? It's kind of this episode's responsibility to address the the fact that it's been on Trump and Hillary mode for the last year or more. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important to say, you know, this is us transitioning into something not as election-centric. Sure. And not just this one, uh, this one uh, narrative, which kind of makes sense when we're right in the thick of it. But now that it's this is definitively the last episode before the election, they're really jumping at it as soon as they can to say we're going to uh, start gravitating towards yep. other things. Yep, yep. There's there's light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, before we get off the political stuff, there was one little thing that was sticking in the back of my mind as I was watching Weekend Update tonight. When we were doing our trial casts, and this never made it into one of the teasers that we put up, but we had some very long conversations about SNL's political bent and how they were tackling this this election cycle. And at one point, this was back when Bernie Sanders was still a contender. You were absolutely 100% convinced that the show had already anointed Hillary and they were pulling punches for Hillary and trying to make Bernie look ridiculous. 
And you just really felt that there was an obvious bias on display with the show. And there still is. Yeah. And at the time I'm like, but you know, they're really just pulling from the headlines and there's kind of like an, a bias across the board that a lot of people, you know, feel like it's Hillary's time and blah, blah, blah. And Bernie Sanders maybe isn't savvy enough to, you know, to, to be a, a president or whatever. Like I was kind of taking the, the standpoint that it was just more the organic, uh, situation of, SNL is goofing on what they have at their disposal to make jokes about and just the news in general and the world in general kind of saw Hillary beating Bernie all along. And so they were just, you know, taking what they had, but now, you know, now that Trump has been, uh, the Republican nominee and you've seen the back and forth on the show about how much time they spend beating up Trump and rightfully so. I mean, obviously he digs his own grave with the things he says, like they, he provides them a lot of material. But all along, it seems like they haven't had much to say about Hillary on Weekend Update in comparison to Trump, which up to this point, I was willing to, again, kind of take that uh, sort of more measured stand of, okay, but this is also what the media is doing, right? The media is all in on Trump bashing, so that's what SNL has to draw from. But a lot's changed in the last two weeks from the last episode where Hillary was basically celebrating her uh, guaranteed victory over Trump's imploding campaign, a fresh new scandal and not like a minor scandal, but in any other political cycle, a level of scandal that would kill a candidate has come out on Hillary's side. And as I'm watching weekend update, I'm thinking, okay, if fair is fair, they should be hitting Hillary pretty hard. And in the cold open, they kind of did right. Like Hillary could not deflect off of the email scandal, but then we get to weekend update and even though they talked about it, Jost had a very pointed joke where he hit hard the idea that the best we can say about Hillary's email scandal is that they haven't told us whether it's a scandal at all. We're not going to know till after the election. The FBI says they don't really know if there's anything in here. And it's just basically a um, neutral face emoji. Yeah. That was the takeaway. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I'm, you know, I'm not super like politically active, especially in like American politics. Like I'm not following every little tiny thing that gets put out by the campaigns because my hunch is that these are such nasty campaigns that 90% of it is just going to be over the top propaganda and you can't really take it at face value. Yeah. But there is some serious meat to this WikiLeaks Podesta email scandal. Yeah. There is some real indictable stuff in there. And here they are selling it like it's a non-issue and yeah. everyone's overreacting. And so even though they were willing to take some time in the cold open to sort of, you know, gently beat up on Hillary before we cash out of the election altogether and say, look, guys, why can't we just be above this and vote our conscience and la la la, happy dappy, you know, three seconds before they do that about face 180 degree move, they sort of gently rib on Hillary for the first time ever, basically. And then in weekend update, they take that a big step further and just basically let her off the hook for what is as far as I can tell. And again, I'm, I'm not in the middle of the U S uh, election cycle. Like we're Canadian. We're just kind of casual observers here, but there is obvious indictable criminality at play here at this point. And they did not do half of what they would do to Trump with yeah. the exact same material to pull on. So I saw the bias that I think you've been tuned into for a long time. And I don't think there's any mystery to it. I think people on the show, uh, some of the the key writers are probably just very much in Hillary's camp, not necessarily because they like Hillary, but because they just do not want an America with Trump at the helm. But 
I think they pulled a punch here. I think they pulled a big punch here and I was kind of surprised. I thought fair is fair, but that did not happen on this weekend update. Yeah. And if you just think about it for a second, yeah, sure. We don't know what the, the emails entailed mm-hmm. and, and they spin that as if it's a good enough reason to not think too much about it. It's yeah. like, we don't <laughs> even know if it's a big deal. You know what? It probably is because she went through as much as she did to hide the stuff and you wouldn't do that <laughs> unless you had something that was really going to hurt your image. Right. Where, the, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like they've already convicted Trump without any like real due process for him supposedly, you know, uh, molesting and raping women and all this stuff that, you know, all these accusations that are being hurled at Trump. And again, I'm not a Trump supporter, but there's a lot of unsubstantiated stuff that's getting hurled at Trump and people are taking it as the gospel truth, right? This guy must yeah. be a monster because some, because all this unsubstantiated stuff is being thrown at him. Well, if we're going to be generous and say that Hillary's scandal is unsubstantiated, there's still enough, even though, you know, she hasn't had her day in court, there is enough stuff there that people can read for themselves <laughs> that should be digging a grave deeper than anything she can crawl out of before the election. And they did her a huge service in telling America in no uncertain terms, nothing to see here, folks move along. Yeah. This is as clear as it gets glaring evidence that Hillary <laughs> has corporate media in her pocket and is using it to get herself elected. See, now I'm not willing to say that like, this is where you and I diverge because I think we both are observing the same thing and see that there is a bias at play here, but I'm not willing to go like shouting conspiracy at it. I think a lot of times these things happen because people's natural biases and just their, uh, their conviction that what they're doing is right. It motivates them to overstep and they just don't even necessarily think that they're doing it because in their mind, this is totally appropriate. So, in the case of the show, if you've got writers that are squarely in Hillary's camp, of course, they're not going to use their megaphone to trash her because they personally want to see her in. They're not going to, they're not going to undermine their own objectives by using their platform to crush Hillary. The show isn't meant to be a fair and unbiased journalistic endeavor. It's comedy. So they, they feel no compunction to give equal time to both candidates or to be equally vicious to both candidates. And I don't think you need a like top down, you know, media conspiracy where the execs on high are telling you what your talking points are and what you can and cannot touch. I don't think it ever has to get to that because I think the, the people involved in the show just naturally are writing from their viewpoint, which is, I don't care what it takes. I'm not letting Trump get to the white house. So I'm using my platform to, to back up my my feelings on this. Okay. <laughs> You're pulling a Pete Davidson there? <laughs> oh, my bad. But that said, I mean, stranger things have happened too. If There's no reason why there couldn't be uh, kind of like notes coming down from on high that, you know, we are not comfortable with you guys touching this particular issue. That does happen all the time in media. I don't want to be so naive as to think that people's better nature and journalistic integrity is the final word on what gets on the air, even on your CNNs and your Fox news or whatever. There are biases at every level of uh, a corporate media outlet that will trickle down and influence what gets on air. I'm not saying that you don't have a point or that these things don't happen or that you're crazy for thinking that I just don't think that you need to immediately take that step into saying it has to be anything more than just the people directly involved at the show level 
making their choices when it comes to editorially what they're going to touch and what they won't. So we have officially dug deeper politically on uh, SNL than, than we've let ourselves do up to this point. I'm going to leave that in the cast unmolested oh boy. and see if we lose listenership, gain listenership. Like this is the real test, right? These kind of uh, recap podcasts, they always try to tread lightly and appeal to the lowest common denominator. Like don't put anyone off, right? There's it's a very polarized audience politically. So you don't want to, you know, kill half your audience to favor the other. I don't think we've done that here, but I have a feeling if I leave this in the cast, it might not be in our best interest, but unlike SNL, we have journalistic integrity. <laughs> do we? Uh, sure. Why not? I mean, I do like, I'm, I'm a pretty idealistic guy when it comes to these kind of things. I, I feel like if I cut this out of the cast, I'm basically doing exactly what SNL does, which is, or any, let's be fair, any show for profit would do is they're going to look at their interests and say, okay, does my content line up with my interests? And if it's potentially going to hurt me, whether it's something that's worth saying or should be part of the public discourse or not, I'm not going to say it because it doesn't work in my interest. So I, even though there's a part of me that's groaning right now going, oh yeah, no, this, this is, there's no way this is going to make the cut because we don't want to you know, we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot, especially this early in the podcast. I'm going to put it out there and I'm just going to believe <laughs> that our audience is going to be savvy enough and just awesome enough. And I know you guys are, <laughs> you guys are, we believe in you. Yes. That they want this kind of like deep dive into these kind of things. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, there's some enjoyment there for people. And I stand by your decision, put it out. Pull no punches like <laughs> SNL does. <laughs> exactly. That said, if people do hate it, don't unsubscribe. Just let us know. And I promise I will do a 180 on this and I will never talk politics again. If that's what you guys genuinely want. This is a test. Yeah. I'm idealistic, but only to a point. So you guys let us know if this is what you want to hear <laughs> or if you want the more milk toast, middle of the road, just stay on topic kind of a cast. Boring. Yeah. That is our political coverage for this week. Let's talk church lady. Dana Carvey has a Netflix special coming out. So it kind of makes sense that he'd want to get his face out there. Did we need to see her tonight? You know, it was always a, a good channel to talk about current events when Dana was a cast cast member. Mm -hmm. And I think SNL showed that that character could still hold up talking about today's current events sure. in 2015, 2016. So I, I do welcome Dana in that character on weekend update to talk about the election. I think it's worked before and you know, where he is promoting something, it makes sense to have him there. And it was just a, a perfect storm of good reasons to see the church lady. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, it's funny that after all this time, the church ladies kind of really come into her own. Yeah. Okay. Last section of weekend update, we get the weekend update, the voice contest winners who are revealed to be our three Chicago Cubs along with Bill Murray and a little bit of interchange with Bill Murray and then go Cubs go. And I really couldn't tell if they were worse singers or worst actors. <laughs> both equally, equally, both equally, equally bad. bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, this is something that just hangs purely on the sentimentality and the enthusiasm of the situation. You know, it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be something for the audience to embrace and say, yes, we want to celebrate the Cubs with you guys. That's, that's all it was. Um, Colin comes out and he does a crotch bump with one of the Cubs. 
do you know what that was about? Did you see that? No, like they went crotch to crotch. Yeah, <laughs> I watched it. I said, okay, I uh, obviously there's something lost on me here because I can't understand any situation where you'd want to do that on live TV. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't pick up on it on either watch. No. Okay, go back and watch it. It it was just this quick little moment, just captured like just barely off the side of the screen. Yeah, they just they just kind of like you know what like like a like a chest bump is like after the game like the guys like literally running into each other yeah this was kind of that but half-heartedly and crotch first right no contact other than crotch to crotch did it look deliberate or it did did oh my maybe this is something that happened in one of the games that as non-viewers we didn't see sure i don't do you you don't watch baseball do you um no i don't follow it close enough to have all the you know the ends on something as minor as as this <laughs> uh you know obviously i you know i knew the world series was going on and and saw enough of it to to be keeping tabs on it but i have no idea why they were compelled to do this so anyways uh we'd love some insight on that if anyone <laughs> if anyone knows what the crotch bump was all about So let's get off weekend update. Let's talk a little bit about Bobby Flay's steakhouse thoughts. We've seen Gemma before. Yeah. At this point, I always just look forward to the song that she sings inevitably in each one. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it follows the same uh, pattern. Like Vogue quasi rap. Yeah. It has kind of a list style to it at the end where she starts listing things. Yeah. Yeah. Red banana, yellow (laughs) banana, big banana, orange banana or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's one note, but the fact that they have Keenan and Vanessa as the ultimate king and queen of, of reactions right. playing a couple here, that that is 75% of the strength of the sketch. Mm-hmm. And then the other 25 would be Cecily's amazing character work. It's, it, it's probably one of the weaker sketches of the night, but I, I still enjoyed it. Yeah, I'd agree. The time that they did it with The Rock... I felt like he brought an enthusiasm to it and was really committed to it to the point where he made the sketch work a little bit better. So this time, because Benedict Cumberbatch's character, maybe it was just more of a sight gag and he didn't have as much that he could bring to the table to carry the sketch. Um, Maybe that's why it didn't quite play as well as I remember the rock one did, or at least as much as I enjoyed the rock one. I don't know what was off for me with this. I didn't think it was bad on second viewing this morning. I giggled a little bit more than last night, but you know, you, when it's getting pretty late and you're in the back half of the show, sometimes you're not being objective because you're just starting to run out of steam. I thought it was just very middle of the road. We'd seen it before. They didn't do anything new with it. There was just, yeah, it was, it was not memorable. Nothing, nothing really more to say about it, I guess. Yeah. Not much to say. Okay. Next sketch bomb riddles. So there was a bit more to digest in this one. What did, what did you think of Benedict Cumberbatch's, you know, evil genius, but you get to see it a little bit more behind the scenes. Yeah. And that, that was the true, uh, a genius of this sketch. Yeah. Now his character was very clearly based on Jeremy Irons in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Right. Simon Says and all that. <laughs> yep. This is one of those sketches where you can pretty much literally see the conversation behind it. In your imagination. So they're thinking, hey, you know all those movies where, you know, they leave the the protagonist with a riddle and then hang up the phone and and let them figure it out for 60 seconds or whatever the time limit is. What if we stuck with the villain 
through that yeah. and not follow the the hero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what what kind of inane conversation is he having with his hapless henchmen about stranger things while they wait for the the heroes to either blow up or <laughs> get to the next step of their evil plot? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a great little idea. Let's check in on the villains and and just see how this is really just their 9 to 5 in a way. Yeah, and and when they have all that time just to wait the henchmen, you know, start questioning the whole motive behind. It's like, <laughs> do you really want to leave yourself this vulnerable where, where all they have to do is solve a riddle and and they kind of best you? <laughs> you 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 give them that possibility up front. It was a, a great little deconstruction of that movie trope. And Benedict Cumberbatch is a great movie villain, right? Like there's a little bit of con mixed in in his performance, like his ability to commit and just sort of like, personify the, the, the supervillain, the archvillain character, it was very strong. Like for a sketch like this, that could have just been lackluster, his willingness to just really invest in those lines. Like when he's on the phone, like really just be absorbed in the intensity of conveying these riddles. There was a little bit of brilliance there that you needed someone like Benedict Cumberbatch to be in the mix in the sketch for it to really hold together. Yeah. I like that a lot. And that makes me think they had this idea yeah. You know, maybe a few weeks back and they were sitting on it for the right host. Yep. And Benedict is probably the best fit we're going to see exactly. this whole season for a character like that. Yep. What host is going to have the gravitas to pull off this sketch? And he was the, he was definitely the right choice. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it was fun. Again, like this is not, this isn't one for the record books, but it was a fun little two minute outing and I'm glad that it made it into the show. Agreed. Okay. So 10 to one sketch. Mr. Shaw, Keenan and Beck are trying to raise money for a good cause. They come to a wealthy potential benefactor's mansion to solicit funds. And upon meeting the benefactor himself, learn that he is literally a bronze statue of an eagle in a suit. This sounds like a 10 to one sketch to me. <laughs> yeah. If you describe this and ask someone, when do you think this aired Yeah, <laughs> in, in sequence? So this is, I, I don't know exactly how you describe a sketch like this in one sentence, other than it's just intentionally absurd, right? Like this is not a scenario that could ever exist in the real world. So the, the joke really just becomes how do normal people react when being faced with an obviously ridiculous situation? If there's any anything from this podcast that I want to uh, be the catalyst for discussion, or the, the catalyst for discussion, I would want it to be this sketch <laughs> and what we're talking about right now. You know what? I'm sure that if the writers ever heard us trying to dissect this sketch, they would be laughing hysterically at the fact that anyone would take the time to try and find a deeper meaning <laughs> in something that I'm, I'm quite certain is just like a quick, stupid thing that they pulled together just, <laughs> just to, just to be confounding to people, right? Like I, I think that the real joke here is just that it's so ridiculous to have to stand there and try and carry on a, like a super grown up conversation about money and funding and stuff like that with the, 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 uh, super loyal right-hand man of this eagle headed statue. Like, are they thinking, is this eagle headed statue a joke? Is it a test? Is this right-hand man crazy? Is he actually the benefactor? And he uses the eagle as a surrogate. Like, (laughs) 
I think the joke is just what are these two straight men that walk into the scene taking away from it? Like what is, what do they think they're in the midst of? Right. Yeah. That's, that's my thinking. I mean, uh, one way or another, it's only speculation. We don't know what they were shooting for with this. It just seems too dumb to have a deeper meaning in it to me. Well, we better just stop talking about it altogether. Yeah. And considering that really when it came right down to it, it was, it was a little lackluster in itself. Like, I don't think that this was a brilliant sketch. Uh, it probably really isn't worth continued analysis. Agreed. Okay. So that's our rundown. Let's talk about the high point or the best moment of the night. What takes it for you? I'm going to say, uh, seeing church lady was my high point because I love that character and maybe it's the nostalgia talking, but it, it, it just makes me feel warm to, to see something that I recognize uh, from the history of the show. Sure. But I also think the character works well talking about uh, current events, as I mentioned before. Dana Carvey is one of the few performers from the show that you check in on him 30 years later and he still got the energy and the smarts to really keep those characters vivid. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is nice to see that she hasn't lost any punch for me. I'm going to give the high point to eighties trooper like commitment to being the dead grandma. Yeah. I I knew you were going to go for that. Yeah. I, uh, just from a performance standpoint, I feel like you really like, I'm going to give her MVP spoiler alert, but as a moment in the show, when I'm really like, I'm glued on the, on the screen saying, is she going to break? Is she going to break? Is she going to hold this together? Is she going to be able to stay committed to the role? Or is she going to smirk what they put her through? Just batting her head around the whipped cream, the cherry, all of it. That was really engaging for me to see that sketch hold together and be as fun as it was. And 80 was the the crux of all that. So I think that that was the, the funnest moment for me now, best overall sketch, best overall sketch. Um, I'm going to have to give it to is or why is better, better to Cumberbatch mm-hmm. hot. Yep. All right. Just cause it was, you know, a funny concept and it was a little bit different than what we usually see. And it was a little bit of time with our, our friends behind the scenes more mm-hmm. so than, than other sketches. Yeah. So yeah, I enjoyed taking that ride. Yeah. Yeah. I'm giving it to that too. For me, it was the reveal. Right. When they do the little title card, they don't tell you the name of the show. So you don't know if you're getting a black jeopardy or you're getting a, you know, one of the other like go-to shows, family feud or whatever. And then, you know, when Beck comes out and he says he's Beck, and you're like, okay, wait a minute. There, there's something a little different about what they're setting up here. And then each of the characters is also in the dark about it. That extended reveal of you trying to understand the world of the sketch and the concept and, and what the rules are to the sketch. That was a fun thing to dissect. And then when they drop it on you that, no, this is Beck Bennett taking over the show for his own purposes to, to satisfy his insecurity about not understanding, uh, why Benedict Cumberbatch is so much more awesome than he is. Yeah. That, that just, uh, just as an idea end to end, it really worked in sketch form. And the, the thing that put it over the top is how quickly they move through it, how good all of the performances were and how each character was true to what they would be in that situation. Even Benedict Cumberbatch, he has a moment where he just kind of like shakes his head in disbelief at Beck Ben. He's like, oh, Beck. <laughs> like, no, don't do this, man. This is, this is, this isn't going to end well for anyone. Kind of a thing. Like every person involved in the sketch had the exact right take on their character. And the, it just, it was quick. Everyone played their part. It was fun. It was smart. And it wasn't something that we see too often. So 
yeah, that was to me, that was a great end to end win for a sketch. A win for sure. MVP. Well, it's uh, kind of related to the, to my last decision. I'm giving it to Beck Bennett. Good. Personally. Yep. Um, who knows who you're going to give it to, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm going for Beck just because of mainly that performance there. Plus his other uh, little bits like Vladimir Putin right. and, uh, and other such uh, appearances. But yeah, this it's mostly for this sketch and how he held it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exasperation and the, the way that he warmed up to him. Yeah. <laughs> and we've been using that term a lot warming up to because they've been taking that direction with a lot of sketches sketches to end it off where. Yeah. They win. They get one over. They get one over. Yeah. But this is a little different because it's him understanding it from the perspective of, of the girls who think he's hot. Right. No, this is exactly where you want that little gag at the end of. Yes. Of him coming around to it. No, this, this is the exact opposite of how that same kind of idea plays out in sketches where you can tell it's tacked on and they just need a way to exit. Yeah. And they haven't really established it in this. It makes perfect sense. He's asking the question, of course, if he has the same reaction, the girls have at the end of getting smitten and caught up in the moment when Benedict Cumberbatch talks to him, that is the only way to conclude a sketch like this. Yeah. So again, that's part of the win is that end to end, everything felt right and it felt conclusive and it felt complete and tight and just, yeah, it was a great, it was a great sketch end to end, but Beck Bennett as the sort of the, the weight of that sketch, like it all kind of hung on him because he had the right approach for his character where he's not being mean and snippy. He's just genuinely confounded. And Beck plays that very well. Like I have a little bit of bravado because there's this, this, you know, hot guy in the room that everyone's swooning over. And I'm just trying to keep a little bit of self-respect here and, and compete a little bit and try and hold my own here. So you, you get that, but then you get the underlying insecurity that's really driving him to kind of puff up a little bit. There's just a lot that he brought to it that, uh, just really spoke to the kind of the truth of what a guy would be thinking. If, you know, if you go to a party or something and let's say we're in high school or whatever, and the, the, the high school quarterback is there, right? Like, you know, you don't have any game, and it can't help but kind of like chafe you that, <laughs> that, you know, like I'm, I'm a good guy. Like I have g- merits and people should, you know, understand that I'm a catch, but you know, next to this guy, I, yeah. I just feel, you know, a foot smaller. None of that matters. Benedict Cumberbatch is in the room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He just, he takes all the glory and I can, and Beck plays that character of someone who'd be uh, a little bit uh, incensed and just feel like they need to solve this for them. <laughs> uh, yeah. So his, he really did kind of capture the essence of that, of that sketch. And it was a lot more fun because he found the right take on it. Um, MVP. I'm not going to dwell on it. AD was a trooper. She did really good. I was going to go with Beck purely because of his kind of, uh, just his overall presence in the show, right? Like he had a lot to do the bomb dissect or the bomb diffusing sketch, all of that. There was just a lot of, of Beck to go around and he did great in everything that he was in, but a Beck abundance. Yeah. But I'm glad that you went with him because I felt like he deserved a, a mention, but for me, yeah, 80, that's a, there, there was some fearlessness there that I think needs to be applauded. It's a briumph. There you go. For 80. <laughs> On a scale of classic, great, typical, weak, or train wreck, how would you rate this episode? I'm going to give it a great. Really? Yes, and if I can, if it's not too late, I wasn't I wasn't in the best mood on our last 
podcast. Okay. So I was kind of overly harsh, and I think I want to give that amend my last. Uh, nope, 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 nope. There is no retroactive amendments. Fine, fine. <laughs> so Tom Hanks is forever uh, t- a typical episode as far as 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 it goes on the record, but uh, I'm going to give this one a great rating. Okay, good. Because I enjoyed the whole the whole uh, the whole episode, even the weaker sketches still did something for me. Okay, so this is a little bit above typical for me. Fair enough. I think great is a good good way to go with this one. All right, I disagree with you, but I'm not going to attempt to beat you down mercilessly. <laughs> I'm I am I'm not going to try and take you to task because I don't I don't I don't think you're wrong. I can totally see how you would come to that conclusion because on my second watch, I warmed up to the show a lot more than the first watch. My feeling on it is this show had some high highs and some low lows. I want to make sure that I don't just let the fun of, Hey, there's Bill Murray and Bill Murray's awesome. I don't want to let that paper over what to me was some, there was a lot of weak material I felt in the episode that just kept pulling it back down into the typical range. It had some soaring moments, but not enough soaring moments to completely um, make up for some of the, the really dull points. Mm-hmm. That was my feeling. I felt like the good cancel out the bad and they just end up right in the middle. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. Now, if I'd said it was a weak episode, I would expect you to take me to task. For that. <laughs> yeah, I totally I might have. Okay. So. Uh, I don't think that's a super controversial (laughs) way to leave things before we sign off here. We've had four other episodes. Let's, let's throw this in the mix here. We've got Margot Robbie at the top, Lin-Manuel Miranda followed by Tom Hanks and then Emily Blunt at the bottom. Where do you put this episode? Uh, Just put it right on top of Tom Hanks. Um, Since, you know, I'm forever doomed to uh, (laughs) stand by my opinion when my, when my mood would not allow me to be <laughs> unbiased, but uh, yeah, if if we have to go by our, our rating system and and hold it as as basically religion, um, yeah, so it would be just one up above Tom Hanks, which puts it at third place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I put it in the same ballpark as Tom Hanks. I personally feel it's a little lower. I think it's between Tom Hanks and Emily Blunt rather than between Tom Hanks and Lin Manuel Miranda. But I would say that it is very, very close to what we got on the Tom Hanks episode for kind of overall enjoyment. Yes. I'm willing to bump it up a spot and, and go with you on this because I think you're probably in the right ballpark. Yeah, we'll throw it right in the middle of the pack and uh, we'll call it a cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. If you'd like to support our podcast or participate in a future episode, go to snlafterparty.fm. We'll be back in one week when SNL returns with host Dave Chappelle and musical guest A Tribe Called Quest. This has been episode number five of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Thanks to Solange, Alec Baldwin, Donna Carvey, Bill Murray, Dexter Fowler, Anthony Rizzo, and David Ross. Everyone here at SNL, thank you so much. It's been amazing.
We thought this election was over two weeks ago. Then, in the spirit of Halloween, the FBI dropped a flaming bag of dog crap on our doorstep and ran away. They gave us no clue about all these emails and what they're about. Hillary could be involved or maybe not. It could be full treason or just a casual chat about yoga. We don't know. The FBI basically sent us this emoji. <laughs> what do we do with that? 